I was, I was doing a little reminiscing uh, this week and uh, had to get out my calculator on my phone to count up the years, but uh, somewhere around 26 years ago, something like that, uh, 1997, Patty and I were just getting into ministry, and that means we were cleaning the toilets at a church, and we were helping to lead worship, and I was running a Christian bookstore. I uh, had no idea really what God's plan was for our lives. We were just some young kids trying to stumble our way through and, and follow God the best we could. And back then, there was no uh, preaching and teaching and, and Christian messages outside of your own church. Um, the only way to do that was to get a good cassette. How many remember cassettes, right? And, uh, and so we would devour every kind of cassette that we could find of Christian preaching and teaching. And one day, I'm working in the bookstore. I'll never forget it. And uh, someone handed me a copy. It was probably bootleg. Don't tell anyone. Uh, but uh, handed me a copy of this uh, cassette tape. And on the label, it said, America's Godly Heritage. America's Godly Heritage. And uh, I was like, well, what is this? I'll put it in while I'm working. And uh, what, what I heard on that cassette made a deep, deep impact uh, on me. And I told our speaker this morning before service started, I said, I'm not sure if I should tell you this or not, but I was just a young man. I didn't know any better. I basically stole your message and uh, made it my own and took it into the public schools and, and began to share with the, the middle school and began to share with the, with the high school some of the history that maybe they're not often getting in schools. And so I'm really, really just humbled and blessed that today uh, we could have the guy who was on that cassette tape with us this morning. Uh, he's the founder of an organization called Wall Builders, which is a national pro-life family organization that represents America's forgotten history and heroes with an emphasis on our moral, religious, and constitutional heritage. Wall Builders, uh, it really seeks to energize, you know, grassroots movements to become involved in strengthening their co communities and their states and taking action. Uh, you know, as God gives us opportunity, he expects us to walk through those open doors. And I think you are going to be blessed today. I'm going to ask you to stand and welcome to Crossroads, Mr. David Barton, everybody, from Wall Builders. Watch your step, sir. Thank you, guys. Great to be with you. Thanks, Pastor Dave. I want to start this morning by just going to a simple Bible verse. That Bible verse is Proverbs 10.22. Proverbs 10.22 says, The blessed of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. What we find from the Scriptures, God's blessing, those are things that enrich your life. And sometimes the things that enrich your life are some of the simplest things that we don't even think about sometimes. And I learned a lot of this from a founding father named Benjamin Rush. Now, he's one of the signers of the Declaration. This last Tuesday, we had the 4th of July. We celebrate what he did back 247 years ago. Benjamin Rush, out of the 250 founding fathers, guys who signed the Declaration, Constitution, Bill of Rights, John Adams said that the three most notable founding fathers are George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and Benjamin Rush. Now, we have a collection of, of things. that We have two, two museums in Texas. We own about 160,000 items from American history. We have items from Columbus all the way through the Bible that landed on the moon with Apollo 14. Most people didn't know they set an altar up, Apollo 14. They left a Bible on the moon. Apollo 11, before they landed on the moon, they stopped in the lunar landing module and had communion before they got out on the moon. We've never heard most of that stuff. That's part of the history that we try to keep keep alive for people. 
And so we own a lot of the writings of Benjamin Rush, his handwritten writings, including his prayer journal. And in his prayer journal, as he's going through, he writes down what the Lord shows him, various scriptures. But he's also trying to be very grateful for the blessings he has. And so he goes through and starts listening. He says, I thank God for this blessing. And, and you go and check, check, that's good, that's check. And then he got the one that just really kind of took me back. He said, I thank God for all the times I have not fallen downstairs. <laughs> Run that by me again. I'll just point out, I ran up the stairs a minute ago and I didn't fall and nobody noticed that. If I had fallen, you would have noticed that. That wouldn't have been a blessing. Turns out some of the greatest blessings in life are things we don't know. Like when you go to the store and you get back home and nothing happens. You didn't have a wreck. Nothing special happens. It's a blessing. If you had a wreck, you would have noticed it. And it's the same way. We have blessings we just take for granted, whether it's our health or our job or our family, anything. And those are some of the greatest blessings we have. One of the blessings, one of, the pe- of all the people in the world, I think the United States, the people who live here, we take our blessings more for granted than any other people, hands down. And I think part of that is illustrated the fact just what happened the last Tuesday on the 4th of July. Do you know there's 193 nations in the world today at the United Nations, 193 nations. Out of those 193 nations, do you know over the course of history, 5,800 years recorded history, thousands of nations, do you know what the average length of a governing document in the history of the world is? For all, all recorded history, average length is 17 years is the length of a governing document. It's interesting that on Tuesday, we set a 247-year record. Now, nobody's come anywhere close to that number, and most people just went by Tuesday like it wasn't anything special. It's just another year. No, it's another world's record is what it is. And so we need to be grateful for those things. Those are blessings that we just take for granted. And within the framework of those blessings, we take for granted this is, there's a guy who came to America back in 1831. His name was Alexis de Tocqueville. He wrote the book, Democracy in America. Sometimes we still read that in school. Most schools generally don't read that anymore. But he came to America and said, you know, you guys, you're 50 years old. You're different from every other nation in the world. I want to go see what makes you different. And he came here particularly to learn about our political system. He came here to learn about our criminal justice system. He was a criminal justice official in France. So he gets here, and when he gets here, he was shocked by what he found. It was not what he expected. And this is what he wrote in his book. He says, the position of the Americans is quite exceptional, and it may be believed that no democratic people will ever be placed in a similar one. We're only 50 years old. He said, I've never seen any nation like this. This is different from any other nation. This is exceptional. This is where we get the term American exceptionalism. That's a way that we describe America now. And American exceptionalism, it's not like a brag thing. Look at me. I'm exceptional. It's we're the exception. We're not the rule. And in so many areas, America is the exception not the rule for what happens in the rest of the world, what's happened throughout world history. Now, when you look at that exceptionalism, what, what causes our exceptionalism? Why are we different? Of all the nations in the world, the, the 193 we have now, why are we different from all others? Back then, Alexis de Tocqueville wondered that, and this is what he wrote on why he found America to be different. He said very specifically, he says, upon my arrival in the United States, the religious aspect of the country was the first thing that struck my attention. And the longer I stayed there, the more did I perceive the great political consequences resulting from this state of things to which I was unaccustomed. France is very secular. France is still secular today. Only between 1% to 3% of French today consider themselves Christians. It's one of the most secular nations in the world. That's what he was used to. The French Revolution was all about getting God out of everything. Atheism was the cry of the French Revolution. He said, I've never seen what I'm seeing in America. He continued. He says, in France, I'd almost always seen the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom marching and pursuing courses diametrically opposed to each other. 
But in America, I found they were intimately united and they were reigned in common over the same country. The Americans combined the notions of Christianity and of liberty so intimately in their minds it's impossible to make them conceive of one without the other. See, we didn't see anything from a secular perspective. We had a biblical viewpoint that caused us to see everything through that Christian filter. Now, this is what's made us different from every other nation because we have kept that in, in place. As a matter of fact, long before Alexei Tocqueville got here, this was something that George Washington reminded us about. George Washington, who had spent 45 years in, in public service, he was a political leader, he was a military leader, etc. After two years as president, he retires. And as he leaves office, he gives what's called his farewell address. And it's about a dozen recommendations for America to stay on track. Guys, if you want to stay on track, here's what we've learned. We're just talking together as family, and here's what you need to do. And those were so significant that you'll find that in public schools for the, for the next century or so, for your first eight years in school, you took a written exam every year on George Washington's farewell address. And it is still chock full of really wise stuff today. Matter of fact, one of the things Washington said back then was don't ever let the federal government get into deficit spending. Wow, that would be really cool if we'd followed that recommendation. <laughs> so there's so much that he says back then. And one of the things that he said back then, he was talking about political prosperity. And in talking about political prosperity, he, he reminded us what caused us to have prosperous politics. He said, of all the dispositions and habits that lead to political prosperity, of everything that causes our politics to work well, he said, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Wait a minute. If you want your politics to work well, what you don't do is you don't make them secular. You, you don't let politics become secular. You keep religion and morality as the basis of politics. So much did he believe that that he said this. He said, in vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness. If anyone tries to make politics secular, if anyone tries to take religion and morality out of, out of government, he said, I don't let them call themselves a patriot. Now, he knew a patriot when he saw one. He had him at Valley Forge. He had him throughout the Revolution. He said, there's no way you can be considered a patriot if you try to secularize the governmental arena, if you try to secularize the public square, if you try to remove religion and morality from politics. See, this is the kind of things that we used to remind ourselves on. Now, this is not what we get in history courses today with all the work that we do in history. I'm appointed on a regular basis to, to a number of states to help with their history standards, their government standards, social studies standards. We don't get anywhere close to this today. We've, we've done the separation church and state thing where you have to keep all the religious principles out of all the civil arena. That's nowhere close to what the founders wanted. That's what we've had since the court said to do that in 1962, 1963. That's not the way we were founded. As a matter of fact, we've come back the other direction. Uh, I was telling Pastor Dave just before it went up that we, we've been involved in about 13 cases at the U.S. Supreme Court. That's not a big number. Mike Ferris, who's here this morning, Mike Ferris is a constitutional attorney who's been involved in dozens and hundreds of cases at the Supreme Court. But this last week, we won two more cases at the Supreme Court. We usually, over the last 60 years, will win a religious liberty case every five to eight years at the Supreme Court. In the last four years, we've won 12 religious liberty cases at the U.S. Supreme Court. We We have more religious liberty available to us as Americans today than we've had in 60 years, and most people are unaware of it, unaware of what we can do in schools now that we haven't been able to do in 60 years, un unaware of what we can do in public arenas. So we're back to a position where we can do this if we, if we choose to, if we want to, but most...
people don't know about it yet. So going back to this, political prosperity is based on religion and morality. And that's what we taught, that's what we believe, that's what we're back to being able to practice now. But this is what's produced and, and made us so different. This is the philosophy that made us different. And if I can take you specifically to the Declaration for just a moment, it's interesting that that document, it opens up with the philosophy that made us different. This, this is the foundation. This is what they announced to the world. And there's three immutable principles in 46 words that, that they told the world. Here's what we believe as Americans. Let me remind you of those words. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created, are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Now, there's three key things there that tell us how government's supposed to operate, and this is what we announce to the whole world. This is what we believe in America, and this is, this is the way we're going to operate. So when you take the first part of there, those 46 words, look at the first clause that it talks about. All men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator. Now, this concept, we start out telling the whole world, guys, there's a creator, and he made us all equal. The concept that there's a creator is a significant concept politically because they acknowledge, we acknowledge, we openly acknowledge, Who's acknowledging this? These are our political leaders saying, hey, guys, there is a God. Now, what's happened for the last 60 years is we've been told, oh, no, no, the court said, you know, we have atheists in America. We have people who don't believe in God, don't believe in Jesus. And so we can't take a position or anything. We have to be completely neutral. And that's why we've gone for all these years unable to, to mention God because government's supposed to be neutral. That's not what they said. They said, guys, this is the unanimous declaration of the leaders of all 13 of our political entities. We're telling you, we start with the belief that there is a God, and we openly acknowledge that. So we were not secular in this mindset. We didn't sit God off in the corner, and we did our stuff over here. God is involved in all of it. And so we start that mindset, and that literally is the first step in having a limited government. What, what is the first step? It's acknowledging that God is over government, because when you have... A, You'll either have a, a big God or a big government. Those are the only two, two things you'll have. Every nation's got a big God or a big government. If your God is small, your government will be big. They will tell you what you can and can't do. If you're in Germany right now, you cannot homeschool your children because children belong to the state. You will go to jail if you try to homeschool your children in Germany. If you're in France and try to share your faith, you cannot do that. It's called proselytization. You will end up in jail. See, the rights that we have come because we believe there's a God. They don't believe there's a God, and so all the rights come from government. Government regulates those rights. So here we believe in a limited government because we believe that God gave us a certain set of rights, and God's bigger than government, and God's the one who ordained government. And you'll find that specifically... George Washington, on the day that we finished the Bill of Rights in Congress, on that day, he called the entire nation to a day of prayer and thanksgiving. Now, this proclamation he made, this is one of the proclamations we own from 1789. He's calling the nation to a day of prayer. Why would Washington, as President of the United States, say, we just finished the Bill of Rights, we need to stop and thank God? This is what he explains. He says, it is the duty, and notice the word duty. They define the word duty in their dictionaries as a legally binding contractual obligation. He said... It is the legally binding contractual obligation of all nations. He did not say individuals. Yes, we know individually we're to acknowledge God. He said, look, nations have a legally binding contractual obligation to do four things. Notice the four verbs he said that nations, political entities are to do. He said, number one, they're to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. Number two, obey His will. Number three, be grateful for His benefits. And number four, implore His protection and favor. That's the duty of nations. This is politically what we're supposed to be doing. And this is what the court said for 60 years. Oh, you can't, you can't mention God in public. There's people who don't believe in God. 
No, no, in this country, this is where our rights come from. This is where we start because if you don't have a big God, you will have a big government. And that's what we've seen the growth of in recent decades. So that was the first principle is that all men are created equal. There is a creator and the creator has given us a certain set of rights, which is what comes out in the second principle. It says they're endowed by their creator with certain unknowable rights. Now, not only is there a creator, but the creator has given to every one of us a certain set of unalienable rights, which means they can't be touched by law or government. These are rights that God set aside. They're not in the jurisdiction of government. They're outside the jurisdiction of government. They belong to us because he gave them to us. Now, this is actually the second step in limiting government because this belief that we have unalienable rights, the way that that limits government is it creates distinct jurisdictions. And let me see if I can explain this. I'm a cowboy from Texas. We have a ranch, we have the horses, the cows, the pickups, everything that goes with that ranch, and I happen to have a red pickup. I really like red pickups. I've had several red pickups in a row, and my son has a black pickup. And so every time he drives on the ranch, I have this, this driving urge to paint his pickup red because you need a, everybody needs a red pickup. Why don't I paint his pickup red? Because it doesn't belong to me. Anything I own, I can spray paint red. I can spray paint the roads red. I can spray paint the pastures red. I can spray paint the cows red if I want to. I can't spray paint his truck. That's essentially what happens here. What the founder said is, government, there's a set of rights that you can't spray paint red. They didn't come from you. They don't belong to you, and you can't touch them. See, they created a jurisdiction that certain things cannot be touched by government, and those are what we call inalienable rights. Now, the Founding Fathers defined inalienable before us. That's not a term we throw around a lot today. So an inalienable right, according to the guys who wrote our documents, if you take somebody like a John Dickinson, who not only helped with the Declaration, he signed the Constitution, he said an inalienable right is a right which God gave to you and which no inferior power has a right to take away. If God told you you can, government can't tell you you can't. If God gave you that right, government can't say no. You have the same thing from Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton, signer of the Constitution, he said, inalienable rights, he said, they're not to be rummaged for among old parchments or musty records. They're written as with a sunbeam in the whole volume of human nature by the hand of divinity itself and can never be erased or obscured by any mortal power. These are rights given to you by God and no government is allowed to touch those rights. You have the same thing from John Adams. John Adams said inalienable rights, he says they're antecedent to all earthly governments, the rights that cannot be repealed or restrained by human laws, the rights derived from the great legislator of the universe. So that's a set of rights. Now there's very few things today that we have anymore that government doesn't touch or get involved with. But the philosophy is, look, there's a clear distinction between what government can touch and what it can't touch, and it's based on the definitions that God gave. Now, most government officials today don't know the definitions that God gave, which is why we go back to those documents. So they tell us what an inalienable right is, but what are our inalienable rights? Well, founding fathers listed several. In the Declaration of Independence, they said that among others, you have, and, and Sam Adams, who's called the father of the American Revolution, he said in the Declaration, he said, among others, you have, he says, first, a right to life, secondly, to liberty, thirdly, to property, together with the right to defend them. There's four inalienable rights, the right to life, liberty, property, and self-defense. But in the Declaration, it said, among others, you have these four rights. So what are the others? Well, they came back some 13 years later and said, well, we told you in the Declaration of about four of them, but here's the, the others. And so the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment lists five, lists five inalienable rights. The Second Amendment lists two inalienable rights, God-given rights. The Third Amendment lists one God-given right. The Fourth and the Eighth Amendment have about a dozen God-given rights. In the Bill of Rights, there's about 
15, 16, 17 rights that are God-given, that government is not allowed to touch, not allowed to regulate, not allowed to mess with. That's out of their jurisdiction. So that's the second belief we have is not only is there a creator, the creator God has given us a certain set of rights that government is not allowed to touch. Now, the third part of the declaration says that they're endowed by their creator with certain noble rights. That's the second part. The third part says that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. We now know the purpose of government. Government exists to protect to you your inalienable rights. The number one purpose of government is not to secure the borders. It's not to make sure we've all got a job. It's not to make sure the economy's strong. The number one purpose of government is to make sure you can practice the inalienable rights that God gave you. And after we get that done, now we'll talk about borders and economy and other things. So this is the founding declaration that we had. This is what made us different. And by the way, when, when you look at this concept that, that government is instituted to, to secure these rights, Go back to Sam Adams for a minute, because Sam Adams, the father of the American Revolution, he listed originally in the Declaration for those rights. He said, and there's others as well. It's, it's striking that when you go in and look at, at what Sam said about those rights, he said government was originally designed for the preservation of the inalienable rights. What's he talking about? Where do we find the first ever government in the written history of the world? The first government that occurs anywhere in history occurs in Genesis chapter 9. If you remember Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, you have Adam and Eve, they have children, then Cain kills Abel, which is not a good deal, and the whole world goes downhill from there. And by the time you get over to chapter 6, 7, and 8, everybody's killing one another, they're murdering one another, stealing from one another, and God says, okay, let's just wipe it out, we'll start again. So we're back to Noah. So God saves Noah and his family, here comes the flood, mankind is wiped out. When Noah gets off the ark in Genesis chapter 9, God gives to him what are called, what Jewish scholars call the Noahide laws. God says, okay, we're having a new start, and here's what we're doing. First law that God gives is Genesis 9, 6. He says, Noah, whoever sheds man's blood, by man will his blood be shed. In other words, whoever murders someone, you take them out. Now, that's the first civil law, and there were seven given in the Noahide laws. Again, Jewish scholars go through, and you can see them there in Genesis. You can list those laws. That's the first civil government. So God said, anybody who murders somebody else, you take them out. What's that all about? That's protecting your inalienable right to life. You have a right to life. If that is violated, government will step in to protect your right to life. So that's what those Noahide laws were. We, we were not protecting inalienable rights. Now God creates government to protect inalienable rights. See, that's what the founding fathers understood. This is all biblical teaching. This is stuff that comes from the Bible. So when you look specifically at what happens with those inalienable rights, those three principles, those, those 46 words, that's the philosophy that made us different from every other government in the world. You will not find those words, anything like them, recorded in previous government documents. This, this is something brand new that made us different. This is what we were celebrating on 4th of July that most Americans don't know that we're celebrating on 4th of July. This is the philosophy that made us different. So when you look at this, those principles, number one, there's a divine creator. Number two, the divine creator gives us a certain set of rights we call inalienable rights. Number three, government exists to protect the inalienable rights that God gave us. Now, notice that all of those are God-centered. There's nothing secular about that. And what you find historically and also practically in our own life, what we find out is a secular government will never be a limited government. If a government is secular, it will decide that it is God, and it's going to tell you what you can and can't do with your own property, with your own family, with your own beliefs, with your own whatever. This is why God is so important in that arena. 
And we've been taught for 60 years, no, separation church and state, which is not at all what the founders said. You can see what the founders said in their own writings. The court came in with that doctrine, separation church and state. It came out of a, it's an eight-word phrase out of a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote January the 1st, 1802, which is 233 words long. If you read Jefferson's 233 long word letter where he used that phrase, he said separation church and state is what keeps the government from stopping religious activities. In 1962, the court just, well, actually 1947, the court just lifted eight words out of his letter, didn't give the context anymore, and so we've been taught that separation church and state is to make everything secular. Separation church and state was to keep everything from becoming secular. That's the way it was originally done. So we're looking at a situation now where the court has now started rolling this back. Again, we have more religious liberties available to us now as Americans than we've had in 60 years. We're just not aware of that yet, so we're going to have to start pushing back on it. So with, with all of this is happening, Jerry Nadler, who is the recent chairman of the Judiciary Committee in Congress, made this statement. It's a significant statement to me. Maybe you didn't hear it on the news. But he said, God's will is of no concern to this Congress. Now, that's a real problem because our founding documents make God's will a real concern to us because of what God wants for individuals, what he wants in the way of inalienable rights, what he wants in the way of limited government, those are all God's will. And if God's will is of no concern, then we're going to have a big government that tells us what we can do and what we can believe, et cetera. And so this is a huge, huge thing. This is not just, I don't get into politics. No, 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 we can't do that. This is something that affects every American citizen. Abraham Lincoln, at a time when the Constitution was really under attack, at a time when values were under attack, at a time when the nation was polarized and divided, I thought his, his urging, his call was really significant. This is what he said in that period of time. He says, my countrymen, if you've been taught doctrines conflicting with the landmarks of the Declaration of Independence, if you've listened to suggestions that would take away from its grandeur and mutilate the fair symmetries with proportions, let me entreat you to come back to the truths that are in the Declaration. He said, guys, if you've been told something that goes against what's in the Declaration, let me entreat you to come back to the truth in the Declaration. It's God-centered stuff. And see, what he wants, what he's asking us to do is be God-conscious again. And being God-conscious is something the Bible spends a lot of time on. You may recall the passage we have in Romans 1, Romans 1.28. The Scripture says that since they did not think it worthwhile to retain a knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. When you stop becoming God-conscious, your behavior changes. And the nation has stopped becoming God-conscious, and our behavior has changed as a result. We've become much more coarse. We're doing things as we've been told in school. You can't mention God, and we can't be God-conscious. Being God-conscious is really, really significant, really important. That's why things like in trust, in God we trust, a little four-word motto or under God. Why would people sue just to get that out of the culture? They sue because this is part of keeping us God-conscious. When we remember God, when we think about God, our behavior is different than when we don't. So closing this down this morning, let me give you challenges. Going back to 4th of July last Tuesday, what do we do now? There's three challenges I'm going to lay out for Christians. The first one is, comes from uh, Matthias Burnett. He was a, a founding pastor in the early American founding. He was friends with the founding fathers. They pointed to his sermons and his work. He had significant influence. Matthias Burnett said this. He said, to God and posterity, you're accountable for your rights and your rulers. Let not your children have reason to curse you for giving up those rights and prostrating your fathers delivered to you. They said, guys, we'll stand before God and account someday. We'll stand before God and they'll say, I gave you your life. What'd you do with that? I gave you your family. What'd you do with that? I gave you your business. What'd you do with that? I gave you your country. What'd you do with that? 
we'll have to account to God for what we've done. Is our school system better now than it was 20 years ago? If it's not, why not? Because God put it in our hands. This is a country where everything belongs to us. Is our government better now than it was 20 years? See, we will answer to God for what? And we've been told, no, Christians don't get in those areas. Yes, Christians do get in those areas because those are God-ordained areas. So number one, just remember to be a good steward. God has given us blessings not so that we can enjoy them, so that we can pass them on to the next generation, so that we can preserve them, pass them on. So the first thing is to be a good steward. The second thing that I would point to actually deals with speaking the truth. Speaking the truth takes a lot of courage now. Um, the, one of the Supreme Court decisions that was rendered just last week was a unanimous 9-0 decision. All the conservatives and all the liberals of the court agreed 9-0, and it dealt with a lady in, in Colorado who had a web design service, and she's a Christian, and when a gay couple wanted her to design their website, she said, no, nah, I, I can't do that. I can't give my God-given talents to do something that God's so against, and so I, I just can't do it. They took her into court and said, you've got to do it. You've got to design something for us, even though you disagree with it. And the court, in unanimous 9-0 decision, said, no, 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 you can't force people to say things they don't believe. You just can't force people to do that. So notice, liberals and conservatives all agreed you can't force people to say that. Once she won that decision last week, she has had hundreds of death threats in the last week. Why? Because she didn't want to be forced to say something she didn't believe. And people are threatening her with that. Well, see, that's what's been going on for the last six to eight years, and that's why right now we see that 77% of traditional value Americans like us, we self-censor. Because if we say something, we're going to get attacked. If we say something over what's going on here, what happened here, what we believe here, we're going to get attacked. So what we're doing is we're self-censoring. We're not talking. We're not speaking out. And they have an echo chamber on the other side. They're the only voice being heard. And now you have a whole generation of school kids coming up that are hearing one loud voice over here, and they're not hearing the other side because we're self-censoring on this. The problem with self-censoring is if you look at the scriptures, God tells us clearly about heaven and hell. We know exactly that both of them exist. We know how to get to heaven. It's John 14, 6. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. Nobody gets to heaven but by me. But we also know that hell is a very real place. The Bible tells us that, among other places, in Revelation 21.8, says that there's a lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. God, it's clear in God's word, there's a hell. It's interesting. Who goes to hell? Well, the first part of the verse tells us who goes to hell. It says that the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the dollars, all liars, those people go to hell. Look at all the bad things they did. They're going to hell. There's something missing there, very obviously. What is it? Notice the first two words. It's cowards and fearful. Everybody else goes to hell for what they do. These guys go to hell for what they didn't do. They didn't have a backbone. They didn't stand up. They were cowards. They were fearful. They didn't want to say something because it might create a situation. We can't do that. We can't be cowards and fearful. And the church has backed away from all these arenas because we just don't want to create a controversy. No. What if Jesus had backed away every time he was criticized or every time they threatened him? What if he had backed down? He didn't, and he set us an example. So we have to have courage. That's the second thing I would challenge us to is just to have courage. Be courageous. Take and defend the truth. There's a lot of truth out there, and truth is under attack in a way that we've never seen. The third and final thing I would point to would be that of simply, in, in addition to defending the truth, is just restoring patriotism. Now, patriotism has come under attack in, in a lot of ways. Right now, polling shows that in the current generation, the more recent you've been in school, the less you like America. Uh, right now, just two weeks ago, if you're Gen Z, which is kind of like 19, 20 and down, 
Only 16% of that group appreciates America as patriotic. 73% of the older group is patriotic. Overall in America now, only 38% is patriotic. Now, the reason that's a problem is explained by Benjamin Rush. We started with him. I'll finish up with Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush says, patriotism is as much a virtue as justice and is as necessary for the support of civil societies as natural affection is for families. If you love your family, what will you do? You will work for it. If there's faults in it, you're going to help get those faults out. You're going to sacrifice anything you love, whether it's your car, your job, your family, your friends, you're going to sacrifice and do things for it. If you stop loving something, then you don't care how it turns out. You don't care what happens to it, and I'm not going to get involved with it, and I don't care what happens to my car. Same thing with the country. As long as you love the country, you're going to get involved with it. You're going to work for it. You're going to make sure things turn out the best they can. When we lose the love of country, we'll back away from it. And that's what's happening with the next generation. Only 16% have a love of country. So this is where Benjamin Rush says, the love of one's country is both a moral and a religious duty. It comprehends not only the love of our neighbors, but of millions of our fellow creatures, not only the present, but of future generations. If you love your country, you'll work for it, and that's going to bless millions of people. You see, this is exactly what happened with Jeremiah. When the people of Israel were captured, they were conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, they were sent into slavery in Babylon. Remember what God told the slaves, his people who are now slaves and captives in Babylon? He told them in Jeremiah 29, 7, Seek the peace and prosperity of the place where I have sent you. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you'll prosper. You're going into slavery, so you do everything you can to make sure that they're in Babylon, that it prospers and that it does well. Because wherever you are, if that prospers and does well, you're going to do well too. So even in slavery, he said, love that country, pray for that country, get involved in that country. See, that's the same challenge we have in America. And we're not in a Babylon. We may think we're surrounded by Babylonians, but we're not in Babylon. We need to pray and be involved in our country. So this, in the last three years, they have what they call Christian nationalism. That's an attempt to get Christians to stop being patriotic. Oh, you Christians, you're trying to establish a theocracy. Not me, I'm not. And so what happens is we back away from expressing a love for our country because they're accusing us of, of being a theocracy because we love our country. If they can keep us from being patriotic, they'll keep us from being involved in it. And that's something we can't let happen. So you need to develop that patriotism, nurse that patriotism. So the three things there, number one, just re repeating real quick, be a good steward. Number two is speak the truth, defend the truth, and number three is nourish patriotism. Now, if this is new history to you, you're not familiar with this, there's a book on the back there that's called The American Story. We'll go through it. Uh, also, if you're not familiar with the 56 who signed the Declaration, we have a book on the lives of the wives and the wives of the signers. I was at Duke University Law School, put that picture up, smart kids. They couldn't name but two names out of the 56 there, and that's the way most of us are today. We don't even know the people who paid the price they did. Ten of these guys never lived to see what they wanted us to have. Seventeen of them lost everything they owned. Three of them lost their kids. High sacrifice. We need to know who those folks are. Final challenge I have for you comes from the last thing that George Washington wrote at Valley Forge. As he's leaving Valley Forge, going back to the Battle of the British, they've gone through the hard winter. Several thousand of his troops have died. They could have all gone home and been warm, but they didn't. They chose to stay right with him in case the British moved during the winter. They're going to be there. And most of them did not have the clothes they needed, the shoes they needed. The British literally, the British report that you can follow the American army by the bloody footprints in the snow. So these guys died of malnutrition. They, they died of exposure. And they could have gone home, and they did not. And so Washington is so pleased with them. This is the last order he gives them as they break camp at Valley Forge. He says to the distinguished character patriot, guys, I can't praise you enough for your patriotism, the way you sacrificed for your country, the way you love. He said, but in addition to being a patriot, he said, 
it should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of being a Christian. Even George Washington back in his order said, guys, patriotism is super important, but it's much more important to be a Christian than it is to be a patriot. Not that those two exclude each other. Clearly they don't. Those two go together hand in hand. But if you do not know why God put you here at this time in this place, you need to know. You need, to, you need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ that he can say, you know, this is why I sent you to earth at this time, at this point. This is why you're here. I have a purpose for you being here. Every one of us has a purpose if we can get connected to God and find out what that is. And that happens only through Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian, you may be a patriot, but if you're not a Christian, it's not sufficient. And the Washington pointed that out to his truth. So I would challenge you in the same way. If you do not know why you're here, if you're not connected to God personally through Jesus Christ, start with that. If you are a Christian, remember why God put you here. He put you here to be a steward to take care of his stuff. And that involves our country. God bless you guys. Thanks for letting me share. You stay on your feet. We're going to close. Anyone feel like you took a drink from a fire hydrant? Wow. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that several times. Let's pray for our nation today. Father, you have had your hand upon this nation uh, since its beginning. God, you have raised up men and women who sacrificed, uh, who gave so much to make a difference. And now here we are. Uh, God, this is our generation. This is our time. Uh, you've, you've called us, Father, not to just be uh, worshipers inside a church, to be, but to be worshipers in our community, in our schools, in our governments, uh, followers of Jesus Christ, bringing the kingdom of God and your righteousness everywhere we go. And so I pray, Lord, that within this church, you would raise up those people of truth and courage, God, people of love, uh, Father, people that will carry your, your word and carry your spirit everywhere that we go. We thank you for this great country. We pray for our president today. God, we pray, Lord, for all those who are in positions of authority. God, men and women, we pray that you would get a hold of the hearts of these who have positions of leadership. Your word says that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and you turn it whichever way you would have it to go. God, we pray for our leaders, Lord, that you would turn their hearts towards you. We pray, God, that righteousness would rule in this nation for the good of the people, God, that things like love and mercy and grace and goodness would flow, God, in our nation. We are so, so blessed, God, of what you have given us, and we want to be people who respond to this call just like those who have gone before us. So thank you, Lord, for your blessings upon us. Take us, use us, make us instruments of your glory this week. We give you thanks and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. One more time, let David Barton know you appreciate his ministry and his message.